0: I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. So precious to be practicing with all of you. So precious to be doing this essential work together. If you want to call it work. This essential practice. Asking these questions. Looking deeply into the nature of our own experience. So valuable. So precious. Invaluable. And. Yeah, it touches deeply to know that other people care about their lives and want to know their lives so deeply. Insubstantiality. The Noble Maha Sutra, the wisdom of the hour of death says, you should cultivate the perception of insubstantiality since all things are naturally pure you should cultivate the perception of great compassion since all phenomena are contained within bodhicitta you should cultivate the perception of referencelessness since all things are by nature luminous You should cultivate the perception of non-attachment since all things are impermanent. The phoenix of true nature, true nature insubstantial, compassionate, luminous, pure, without reference point, ungraspable, impermanent. This body, your body, my body, insubstantial, compassionate, luminous, pure, without reference point, ungraspable, impermanent. All sense experience, breath, touch, sound and hearing, color and form, seeing, tasting, smelling, thoughts and thinking, the sense of self, the sense of self, all sense experience, insubstantial, compassionate, luminous, pure, without reference point, ungraspable, impermanent. This is the first full day of our Sashin, where we are exploring life, death, life, and death. I like to put a hyphen there, blend it into one word living, dying. We are bearing witness to vanishing. We are bearing witness to vanishing as we ourselves are vanishing. Every moment, what remains? When you let a thought dissolve back into its source, into itself, what remains? When you let yourself rest in that quiet space, Return to its essence. Allow each experience to return to its essence. The question, what is alive? What is life? These are relevant investigations. Often I know when I conceive of life, it's memory or fantasy. If I really look closely in my life, I am like this. And I get some image of myself succeeding or failing. It flashes in an instant, it flashes. And suddenly there's a whole story there. I know that person in that image. It's me, I'm succeeding. It's me, I'm failing. These are all the things I've done wrong. These are all the things I've done right. Perhaps the image that flashes is one of being loved and it feels good and I want more of it or doing something that I love and it feels good, and I want more of it. Or sometimes it's a rehashing, how something could have went better if only I did or didn't do dot, dot, dot. Didn't eat that piece of cheese right before I gave a taysho. Should have went for a walk during the lunch break. I will take a hot tub after dinner. These thoughts are innocuous. And when they just happen and that's it, they just happen and we allow them to just happen and return to their source, it's just like another sense experience. But what I do is I carry around this story, all of those thoughts, they knit themselves together, they create this solid sense, somewhat solid sense of me and my life, the prison of I, me, mine, my life, my comforts. And these aren't satisfying. And I think we all have an intimation of that. These aren't satisfying. It's just like pulling at mirages and trying to find satisfaction. But in some sense, they keep me invested in the religion of me, in the sacred story of my life. I've rehearsed Sanzen, Dharma combat style, during a Zazen period, thinking of how I'm going to outshine Roshi. I've wrote hundreds of enlightenment poems I've practiced giving the perfect meditation instructions. That's how the narrative of self works. It takes the things that we like and plays with them. Thinking about how we will be happy in the future after we do blank this or that, get this or that could be material could be a certain experience or education or relationship or confidence or a spiritual attainment, I often catch myself thinking, I will get enlightened and then I can live my life. Just, But you know what? Enlightenment is enough. Like this insight, not enough. There's more. The Buddha in the Tanha Sutta, which It's one of Hogan Roshi's favorite suttas at the moment. Talks about these ponderings and fantasies and judgments as craving verbalizations. He said, there being, I am, I am here, I am like this, I am otherwise, I am bad, I am good, I might be, I might be here, I might be like this, I might be otherwise, may I be, may I be here, may I be like this, may I be otherwise, I will be. I will be here. I will be like this. I will be otherwise. I'm sure the 18 craving verbalizations dependent on what is internal. And there's nothing wrong. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with these thoughts themselves. Of course, they're completely natural. There's a whole sutta about them. And probably you had some resonance with my own version of that. We all do it. It's part of being human. And they're sticky, they tend to be sticky, these thoughts about myself, based on past, based on future. And when they're sticky, I can create a whole scenario about them, and then I'm not actually alive in the present moment. I'm alive in my judgments of myself or others, in my conceived pain. But when we allow them to vanish, that's what we're practicing. appear and when we don't feed them or when we catch ourselves feeding them, what happens? So there's like, you can't go wrong. The moment you notice that you're thinking, who cares if it's been 10 minutes or two hours or a millisecond? You catch it and it vanishes. And that's what we're studying during this Sashin, that vanishing. Being present in that vanishing, allowing thought to return to itself, to its source. The truth is we are only alive now. Maybe that's all I need to say. Maybe that's all we need to say for any Dharma talk. The truth is we are only alive now, and we know this. Thoughts can only happen now the thoughts of the past, the thoughts of the future, all the memories and images that flash through the mind, only now. We can't even lean back and experience a millisecond, a nanosecond before this moment. It's gone. It's really gone. And we're left with now. And we can't lean out of this moment Even for a millisecond. That leaning is now. That thought of the future is now. It's obvious, so obvious, and it's not. The mind is tricky, throws up smoke screens. We're used to believing our thoughts. Chosen Roshi said that my Zumi Roshi always used to say, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. And of course, from one perspective, it really is. The only time we are actually alive is right here, right now. To what is this now? Right? That's what Sashin is granting us to inhabit This now, which is inseparable from our life, right? What is this life? Both are invitations, both of these questions what is now? What is this life? Both are invitations, encouragements to get still to, to inhabit this moment, to be now, to experience now from the inside, to experience, to know the shape of here, whatever is arising, that is the shape of here, that is the shape of now, this body, this emotion, this coloring of the heart, this mood, this flavor of presence we recommend during sashin having a very clear practice that will anchor attention to present moment experience because the habit to dwell in the thinking, planning, reminiscing mind is so strong. And as I've said, and as Jogan said, thoughts are equally insubstantial and fleeting, flowing, never concretizing, ungraspable mind moments they tend to be sticky. They tend to give us a sense of separation and glue together moments, memories, fantasies to create that sense of me, independent from everything else, permanent, true. And because we have a tendency to believe what they are saying or trust them, and because most of us have developed some kind of addiction or dependency on thinking, they tend to obscure the more liberating truths. So we recommend having a practice to anchor attention, to come back to when you notice, ah, thinking. But meditation isn't a war on thoughts. It can sometimes feel like an assault to the ego or the sense of self. Yet meditation is simply aligning with what is true, what is true in this moment, attending to the present moment experience, being the flow of breath, the flow of sound, the changing sensations of the body, and allowing thought to just move through, empty and insubstantial. Image, color, sound, touch. What are the textures of thought on the sensation level? Attending deeply, we bear witness, we experience, we become change, flux, flux. We become in substantiality. I love this simple teaching by the Buddha called the three marks of existence. And it goes like this, all things are impermanent. All things, including what we call the sense of self, what is the self self made out of, or made of, body sensations, thoughts, the, the five elements, perhaps, mental formations, consciousness, all things are impermanent, changing, fluxing, ungraspable. It's the first mark. Second, all things are without a fixed sense of self. We sometimes say empty of independent self-existence, composed of multitudes, interdependent. Thich Nhat Hanh says interbeing. And the third, if we deny these truths and cling to permanence or an idea of separation, there is suffering. There's friction. We're misaligned with two fundamental truths. So we. But if we clearly see, recognize the changing, fluxing, empty, interdependent nature of self and experience, there is liberation, there is freedom. Buddha called this Nibbana. The Buddha spoke of Nibbana as the deathless. When things are seen as they are, changing and interdependent, there is no self to suffer. Nibbana is, freedom is. And there's nothing that can die. If we truly study impermanence, if we truly study flow, know it directly, be the arising and vanishing of experience, only to arise and vanish anew moment by moment, changing, never crystallizing, never becoming. Nothing is born of itself. How could anything die? Constant flow, a constant evolution. The body, a coming together of elements, sensations, perceptions, concepts, beliefs, ancestral ancestral DNA that connects this body to the evolutionary process of the universe. I want to share something uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh about ways that we can investigate the body. He calls it looking deeply into the body. If you look deeply at your body, you can see your parents, your grandparents, all your ancestors, the whole history of life on Earth. We see that our body is a formation, a composite made of everything else that we do not normally think of as body. You can see the sun, the moon, and the stars, time and space. In fact, the whole universe has come together to form our body. Only one thing is missing from our body, and that is a separate self, a separate existence. If we put the sunlight back in the sun, the rain back in the clouds, and the minerals back in the earth, how could our body exist? All phenomena contain the whole universe. Nothing can be by itself alone. We can look at our body in such a way that we see its dependence on all things and thus see that it has no reality as a separately existing entity. You may like to take a moment now to do this, breathing in and out mindfully as you read the following contemplation. I'll read it to you. This is contemplating the body in the body. So please um, become aware if you're not already of your body and feeling the body from the inside, filling out the body with awareness. One of the instructions Jogin gave during the body practice was notice if there's a part of the body that you are not inhabiting and take the time to bring awareness and attention to that area, bring it online. Contemplating the body in the body. This body has been there for a long time, for millions of years. It is the continuation of many diff- generations It has never died. I cannot take this body lightly. It is not mine alone. I cannot underestimate this body. It is the body of all my ancestors. The mind is in the body. The mind gives rise to this body and this body gives rise to the mind. In this body, all the wonders of the life of the cosmos are to be found. The realm of no birth and no death are also in this body. I cannot take it lightly. It contains all of the mysteries of the cosmos. This body is also a wonderful flower of the cosmos. I want to take good care of it. I want my body to reveal to me all the mysteries, all the wonders of the cosmos. This body will be continued in many other forms, whether I have children and grandchildren or not. I want this body to continue beautifully for many lives to come. Just as the body is the coming together of the elements from before our parents were born, from time immemorial, the mind is also a coming together, a coming together of sense, perceptions, neural firings, memories, consciousness, awareness, We see and know that ideas are passed down through family, culture, relations, that beliefs too are learned and conditioned, that vows and aspirations are shared. And we hear stories about how people have changed their minds, disrupted habits of anger that perhaps were generations old softened over time through practice, through will and determination, perhaps through life circumstances. And we too have probably witnessed the hardening of souls over time, how anger reinforced decade after decade calluses the heart, how sadness and grief never transformed to compassion can make someone bitter, untrusting, feeling victimized by life. We inherit and pass down and pass on and share this inheritance. Mind is non-local. Our thoughts and beliefs influence our speech and actions which influences others. Even our moods and states of mind, as you probably all well know, influence and affect others. And even if we know that these moods and energies and voices are not personal, we want to transform our relationship to them out of compassion. We don't want to bring harm to others or leak our suffering, our ignorance, our unchecked hatred, our judgments, our delusions. We don't want to carry them forward. We don't want them to influence those around us who we love. And so the good news from Buddhist practice perspective is the mind is malleable. We are always practicing something, something, and this insight often leads people to want to practice presence and kindness in a more continuous and sustainable way. People often want to know what practice should I do to prepare for death? In the study I've done and in my own experience, three practices rise to the surface. Acceptance, letting go, and compassion. You could say these are also what practices should I cultivate to prepare for a good life? Acceptance is necessary for presence. They go together. In order to be present with what is, there is already acceptance, a willingness to feel. Sometimes I like to translate acceptance as allowing or welcome. Acceptance isn't an intellectual exercise. It is a body heart experiential experience of saying yes, 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 feeling, consenting moment to moment to whatever is happening. It is in allowing that impermanence naturally unfolds, naturally happens. Things, emotions, body sensations are allowed their expression, allowed their dance, their movement, their process. Acceptance gives way for letting go, which is also a natural process. Letting go could also be said as letting flow, allowing vanishing, allowing vanishing Sometimes it is helpful to deliberately relax the body and mind at the beginning of a sitting period or whenever you notice tension building up. I shared a practice earlier this morning that I often do to release the past and reminiscing mind. Like tapping into the felt sense that I'm holding on to the past. And that can be like a memory, or it can even just be a body sensation of like, I came into this zendo 10 minutes ago. And there's still like an impression of where I had been that, that carries a kind of continuation of a sense of self. And I find that just unhooking from that, like physically unhooking, I like imagine there's a hook in my heart that's like, past, and I just like, and then same with the future, there's something like tugging at me forward. It sometimes can feel like a forward momentum of, I'm going to do this later, or, planning or some kind of fantasy making. And just to imagine like unhooking that from the heart, like, oh, I don't have to carry around those heavy weights of me, future, me, past. And just to like, imagine unhooking them gives rise to in a really physical way, a feeling of expansion in the heart, a deeper settling into the present. Oh, I don't have to be my future self right now. I don't have to be my past self right now. I can just be this. It seems to float just here, just now. And then I can relate to the phenomena, the images of the past, memory, the images of the future, anxiety, fantasy, and worry when they arise in the present as as more the fundamental aspects of what they are, touch, sound, color, light, only arising now as sense phenomena. In some way, that unhooking exercise unhooks me from the sentimentality of myself the attachment i have to this apparent narrative of my life it doesn't it's like not so personal i can relate to my thoughts in a way that's not so personal these are thinking sensations i don't have to take myself so seriously such an important mantra <laughs> And then compassion, compassion is bodhicitta. It's the sincere desire that you awaken. Give yourself that, the sincere desire that you transform, that the fruition of practice blooms in your heart, and that all practitioners of this sashin awaken. Find true peace of mind. Discover fundamental happiness. And that all beings everywhere find true liberation, happiness, freedom, and ease. Compassion is coming back to the practice with kindness. When you've noticed you're distracted or caught in thought, in a way, this t- is to be celebrated. It's a moment of recognition. It's a moment of allowing, it's a moment of vanishing, distraction dissolving into presence. Compassion is having confidence in awakening, to having confidence in this moment of freedom. Having confidence in awakening only happens now. And so it's enacted now through presence. The liberative experience of this practice only happens now. It's not some miracle that is bestowed on you in the future. It's practiced awakening. Like Dogen Zenji says, practice awakening. One, compassion is having confidence in this in transformation, in the process of opening the heart, of being present, of truly being lived, being alive in this moment. Compassion is trusting the authenticity of this. It's so uniquely personal. It's so intimately you, each of us showing up exactly as we are. You cannot compare it to anyone else. This is your liberation. This is your freedom. It only happens here for you. And it can be shared, but it can't be compared. I want to read a case uh, from the Blue Cliff Record This is um, Master Ma is Unwell. One device, one object, one word, one phrase. The intent is that you'll have a place to enter. Still, this is gouging a wound in healthy flesh. It can become a nest or a den. The great function appears without abiding by fixed principles. The intent is that you'll realize there is something transcendental. It covers the sky and covers the earth. It cannot be grasped. That's some lines from the pointer. And here is the case. This is case three from the Blue Cliff Record. Master Ma was unwell. Master Ma was unwell, and then here's a note of commentary. The fellow has broken down quite a bit. He's dragging in other people. The temple superintendent asked him, Teacher, how has your venerable health been in recent days? The commentary, 404 diseases break out all at once. They'll be lucky if they're not seeing off a dead monk in three days. And back to the case. The great master said, sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha. A commentary. How fresh and new. Sustenance for his fledgling. And then I want to read uh, the verse to this case. Sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha. Sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha. What kind of people were the ancient emperors? For 20 years I have suffered bitterly. How many times have I gone down into the blue dragon's cave for you? How many times have I gone down into the blue dragon's cave for you? This distress is worth recounting. Clear-eyed, patch-robed monks should not take it lightly. uh, Clear-eyed, patch-robed practitioners should not take it lightly. The sun-faced Buddha lives in the world for 1,800 years. So the sutra says, the moon face Buddha enters extinction after a day and a night. Timeless and fleeting, sun-faced Buddha, moon face Buddha, this life. To study vanishing, to study endings. That's what we're doing during this sesshin. To get so close to what is happening that you watch it transform. Disappear before it even arises. Jogen Sensei said at breakfast, "If you want to know the boundless nature of experience, it starts right here, in this instant. Boundlessness is imminent. Boundlessness is imminent in the sensations of the hands, in the particles of the exhale." in the wail of the heater, in this wave of anxiety. Get close. How long does a single thought last, a single sensation? Climb down into the blue dragon's cave of your own body, your own experience. No one else can live your life but you. Sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha. I've always found deep inspiration and solace in reading the poems written by awakened masters at the time of their death or the time that they were sick. That's one reason I wanted to share that particular koan. The zest and zeal, the spontaneity and fearlessness I feel speak something about what it is to truly be alive. That perhaps death too is as much of a step into the unknown as the next moment coming forth from the great mystery. That perhaps death too is as much of a stepping into the unknown as this next moment, but you have no idea what will arise. If life only happens now, death, too, can only be here. Can't be anyplace else. Sun-faced Buddha, moon face Buddha. Musho Jusho died on the 15th day of the fifth month in 1306. He proclaimed this poem after summoning his students and arranging his burial. When it comes just so, when it goes, just so. Both coming and going occur each day. The words I am speaking now, just so. Then he died upright in the zazen posture. Dogen Zenji's poem at the time of his death, 54 years lighting up the sky, A quivering leap smashes a billion worlds. Ha! Entire body looks for nothing. Living. I plunge into the yellow springs. Living, he says at the time of his death. I plunge into the yellow springs. Deepa Ma, one of the... more current enlightened masters, died in September 1989. And according to a neighbor who was with her at the time of her death, in the last moments of Deepa Ma's life, she folded her hands in prayer and bowed to a statue of the Buddha. She then stopped breathing, dying as calmly as she had lived as she had lived for the last decades of her life. The 16th Karmapa died in in meditation in a hospital in Chicago in 1981. The following account is from the Karmapa's attending physician, Dr. David Levy. He said that after noticing indications of heart failure on the monitors, the medical team tried to revive the Karmapa. But gave up after 45 minutes. We began pulling out all of the tubing, but I suddenly saw his blood pressure was 140 over 60 or 140 over 80. A nurse screamed, he has a good pulse. Levy said. The team members were incredulous. An older Tibetan Lama in attendance patted Levy on the back as if to say, it's impossible, but it happens. Levy said, it was clearly the greatest miracle I had ever seen. Levy reported that 48 hours after the time of death, the Karmapa's chest was still warm. My hands were both warm, but his chest was warmer. He said, if I moved my hands toward the side of his chest, the body was cold, but the area right around his heart stayed warm. He also reported that there was no or. or odor or decay, which typically set in quite quickly after death. He stayed in deep meditation for three days, then it ended. He became cold and the process of death set in. The atmosphere changed as well, Levy said. This is from Zen Master Taigen Sofu. I raised the mirror of my life up to my face. Sixty years. With a swing, I smashed the reflection, the world as usual, all in its place. And lastly, this is by lay woman Asan. Asan was a lay student of the Soto Zen master Tetsumon and was greatly enlightened. But later she also met and practiced with Hakuen Zenji. so that's in the Rinzai tradition. In her old age, Asan became seriously ill, and her sons and daughters gathered around her seeking some last words. Asan laughed and said, In this world where not even a dew, not even a drop of dew on a leaf of a word remains, in this world where not even a drop of dew on a leaf of a word remains, what sort of saying should I leave? she then serenely passed away. I think these stories show that the great masters died the way that they lived. Deepa Ma was a very devotional practitioner, dying with her hands in a prayer position, bowing to the Buddha. Asan, living serenely, she dies serenely. Their karmapa dying in meditation. Continue to observe, investigate, be this vanishing moment. Notice endings. Attend to transitions. I love this phrase by Mingyur Rinpoche. He says, mind the gaps. Notice the endings of distractions, thoughts, daydreams, the end of sitting before walking, the end of chanting, of chewing, of tasting. How long does a single taste last, a single sound, a single moment? Allow vanishing to be your companion during this sashin. Befriend vanishing. Allowing what is gone to be gone, what vanishes to be extinct, forgotten, erased, self liberated. It's such a joy to practice with all of you, and may we continue.